take your Bibles, go to the book of Nahum. <laughs> Have I intimidated you about Nahum yet? This will work. Um, I was reading a fellow's commentary on the book of Nahum, and he, he was very clear and passionate, and he said, okay, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. All of it. And it's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for instruction, for, for correction and rights. It's, it's all of these things. It's, it's for us so that we might be thoroughly furnished, that we might be perfected uh, in, in the working of the Holy Spirit as he, he convicts our hearts. And the, so the, the, the Word of God, it is inspired by God. All of it, from beginning to end, the Word of God is the inspired Word of God, with the exception of Nahum. So when you read that in a commentary and you're getting ready to study it, you're like, oh great, there's a lot of positive nature around Nahum, huh? Nahum is, is inherently dark. And, and one of the things that, that many don't know about Nahum, so let me ask, this is, there's no judgment. How many of you have never really actually read the book of Nahum before? Okay, you are not out of the ordinary, so you, that, that's typical. Because you start reading the book of Nahum and, and you don't find encouragement, you find it like, whoa. I think I'm going I'm to go to Matthew. Let's get to the New Testament. Let me, let me give you a few tidbits about the book of Nahum. Nahum was written by a guy named, wait for it, Nahum. How do you like that? So Nahum wrote this book, and actually it's one of the few prophecies that was written. Most prophecies were spoken word to people, and, and they were supposed to hear it, and then they eventually put it into written form. However, Nahum, it says in chapter 1, verse 1, it was a book that was written by Nahum. So this is an actual book that had been recorded. So it was, it was written out for us to read it. And so some of the stylings of Nahum really um, kind of prove that out, and we'll see that as we walk through together. Nahum is written to a place called Nineveh. Ever heard of it? So tip, actually, Nahum could be called, wait, I hit the button and it didn't go, hold on, wait for it, there it is, Second Jonah. Now you remember the story of Jonah, everybody remembers the story of Jonah, because Jonah is the story of this guy, God called him, told him to go to Nineveh, and Jonah's like, I don't think so, I'm out of here. He jumped on a boat, went a different way. God brings this big storm and wind, and oh, and the sailors are freaking out, what's going on, what's happening, and they start chucking things overboard, and then Jonah finally says, it's me, it's my fault, I'm running from God, and they're like, oh, what are you thinking, Jonah? And so they grab Jonah, they toss him overboard, and it just so happens a fish is going by, and God appointed the fish, to he swallows up Jonah, right? You get to Jonah chapter 2. This is the fastest story of Jonah you've ever heard. Jonah chapter 2, and you hear this beautiful psalm and prayer of Jonah from the belly of a fish, of all places. He's inside a fish. What a disgusting place to be. When you're on the outside dealing with gut in a fish, it's kind of gross to begin with. When you're in the fish's belly, that's not a cool thing. Jonah's in there, and he has this heartfelt prayer, and it lands on this. Salvation is of the Lord. Mercy is from God and God alone. No other. The only reason that we experience mercy is because God's good favor on us. And so God says, got it, nailed it, all right. And then he causes the fish to puke Jonah up on land. Jonah's not having a good day. Jonah then goes to Nineveh when God tells him to go to Nineveh. He gets to Nineveh, this huge place. It says that it takes three days to walk across Nineveh. It's this huge city. And one day into the journey, Jonah breaks out one of the greatest messages ever preached. Forty days and Nineveh will be destroyed. That's it. Forty days 
Nineveh will be destroyed. So Jonah then, after having preached that incredible message that will go on forever as one of the greatest messages ever preached, goes to a hill outside of Nineveh to look down at Nineveh to watch God bring the fire. He is ready to see Nineveh torched. And yet a crazy thing happens. Salvation is of the Lord. And the Ninevites, from the youngest to the oldest, from the the least influential to the most influential, it says that they repented. And because they repented, God said, they will have my mercy. And Jonah pitches a big temper tantrum. I knew you were going to do this. Of course, we talked about that. That's a little weird, isn't it? How dare you get angry at God for his mercy? It's the only reason that you're not in the fish's belly being digested right now, Jonah. I knew you were going to bring them mercy. I knew you were going to. That's why I ran away to begin with, because you were going to do that. And Jonah and God have an argument, and you'll never guess who wins that argument. And it ends with God saying, who do you think you are? That you could look at 120,000 people who don't know the difference between their left hand and their right hand and want them all dead. Who do you think you are? To look at these people and think that they do not deserve the mercy of God, the very mercy that is responsible for you even walking and talking and breathing right now, Jonah. Who do you think you are? So we ended our, our time in Jonah asking ourselves the question, who is our Nineveh? And do we have that same attitude that Jonah has? And so, so here, now fast forward 100 or 150 years, and what you find in the book of Nahum is that the Ninevites have repented of their repentance. They're back to their old tricks again. As the capital of the Assyrian Empire, one of the most brutal and vicious empires in world history, they are now tearing up the place again, and they're tearing people down and they're murdering people and they're conquering people and and it just continues to go on and on and on. And, And what you find is God has had enough and he pronounces a judgment against them. And that judgment is verbalized in Nahum chapter 2, verse 13. And it says this, I am against you declares the Lord Almighty. He repeats his judgment against Nineveh in chapter 3, verse 5. I am against you, declares the Lord Almighty. What a terrifying announcement. I am against you. That's God's word to the Ninevites. I am against you. That is, that is a young man being called out for his first street fight level of call out. And okay, I've never had a street fight. However, when I was 12, I moved into a boy's dorm and I lived with, uh, the, the first year I got there, I was probably 50 or 60 other boys who were aged 12 to 18. I was 12. I was on the lower spectrum. Guess what that meant? I had great opportunities to build wonderful, lifelong relationships with some of the older boys. My first roommate was a sophomore, 16 years old. His name was John. John was a great guy, but he was a behemoth. He had muscles in his neck that were bigger than my thigh. John was a big boy. And and he's a pastor now, and we joke every once in a while. We we communicate on Facebook. Good guy. Um, However, he, he, he put up with a lot. 
I mean, think about it. As a 16-year-old, maybe you had a little brother who you shared a room with. Maybe he was 12. So here's this 16-year-old living with a 12-year-old. There's no parents there to tell the 12-year-old to zip it. Stop talking. And I know this may surprise you, but as a 12-year-old, I was not known for my great stature or my wonderful muscleness. However, I had a mouth would not stop. And, and John, to his credit, was gracious and kind. I mean, I just, and, and, and he just, nope, 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 until one night, um, lights out had come, I'd gotten into bed, <clears throat> and I remember the, con- <laughs> I don't remember why, but I started making fun of John's girlfriend. And I, and I, I did, man, I just, I just kept going. And it, I, I was having fun. And he was still gracious and merciful until I crossed a line that I did not know existed. When I began to make fun of the teddy bear that his girlfriend had given him. Because no 16-year-old, self-respecting 16-year-old should sleep with a teddy bear in a boy's dorm where other guys are going to be there. Now, looking back on it, it should have been a warning to me that no other guy in the dorm ever made fun of it. However, Mr. Mouth decided to take a couple of shots at the old teddy bear. Now, I had made a tactical error in getting into bed. I had gotten underneath my sheets and my blankets, and my arms were under there. So in the moment that I began making fun of the teddy bear, there was this ninja move that John did that I still don't understand, and he ended up lying across my chest. Now I'm in trouble because I have no hands to protect myself. And so for 15 minutes, John laid across my chest and did this on my forehead. And after 15 minutes, I had this big Pinocchio thing sticking out of my forehead. It's like, I'm sorry, man, I'm sorry. See, when John called me out in that moment saying, I'm done, it was a terrifying thing. How much more when the God of the universe says, I want you. Why is God against them? I, 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 I think... In fact, I I can be fairly confident of it. The main reason that God is against the Ninevites is because his character demanded it. If you look at chapter 1, what you hear is the character of God being spelled out by Nahum. And and he's talking about God's interaction and how he's going to interact with the Ninevites, the the capital of the Assyrian Empire. How he's going to deal with the Assyrians because of their sinfulness, because of their braggadociousness, because of their rebellion against God himself and the way that they treated other people being so heinous as, as opposed to the way God described right treatment of people. And when those things occur, God's very character is being challenged. And so what Nahum does is says, let me explain to you why God is against you. Let's take a look at God's character. So as we start in chapter 1, verse 2 of the book of Nahum, it says this, The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. See, God is jealous. Now, the problem is when we hear the word jealous, we think of the petty jealousness that exists among our, our immature relationships even here. I, I mean, so did, did, did you text her? Did you text him? What time did you text him? Why did you text him? Did he Facebook message you first or did you Facebook message back? I mean, you're supposed to be spending time with me, not with them. There's a pettiness 
to our level of jealousy, but the, the level of jealousy in, in God's character is, is far surpassing of that. It's born out of a, a love that he has for his people and a deep and fiercely protective commitment to them. These are my people, and I am providing for them, and I want the best for them, and I'm going to protect them come what may. I am in their corner. Nothing will ever change that, and when there is opposition to that, this, this jealousy rises up in God, and it displays itself at the end of verse 2. The Lord takes vengeance and is filled with wrath. The Lord takes vengeance on his foes and events his wrath against his enemies. See, God is not just jealous. He is wrath. Well, what is wrath? Wrath is always raised by the disobedience of mankind to God. And, and way more important than just the, the response of wrath out against sin is the understanding that, that even in that pouring out of wrath, even in the midst of the jealousy of God, as it leads him to pour out his wrath, his pouring out of wrath is a controlled reaction. It's not an emotional one. It's not him just losing his mind. I shared a stupid illustration in first service, but that's okay. About 15, 20 years ago, probably 15 years ago, maybe we'll say 20, it makes me seem more mature now. Um, about 20 years ago, um, my wife and I had gotten into some stupid argument, and then go figure, you look back at the argument, and you're like, ah, guess whose fault it was? I was just beat. It. it was so dumb. But anyway, I got so angry that I couldn't, I couldn't, I couldn't. And I'm walking out of the room, and I'm like, I got it, I got it. And I grabbed a shirt, and I'm like, and all the buttons went flying everywhere. Like, I know that's right there. And you know what the problem was? I loved that shirt. But in my moronicness, my stupidity, my foolishness, my immaturity, what happened was I allowed my wrath to be poured out against my shirt in an emotional way. And that ain't God. God is not emotive in his pouring out of wrath. God does not respond in an emotional way to situations like that. You want evidence? Look at the account of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. If there was ever a time that God could respond in an emotional way and change everything. It certainly was those moments when there were men and women, Pharisees and common men, taunting and mocking and ridiculing and spitting upon Jesus. And yet God reserved his wrath. Why? Because God's nature and character is not just jealous, it's not just wrath, but it continues in verse 3. He is slow to anger, but great in power. Slow to anger. That's not passivity. That's not a weakness. This is an active meekness. And I, and I think we misunderstand meekness. I don't think we quite grasp what meekness is. I think we, 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 we picture in our mind this little mousy figure in the corner, like, oh, I'm meek. That's not meekness. Meekness is, is, is holding your strength and your might and your power in check. It's, it's the picture of daddy wrestling with the kids. I mean, come on, there was a day, not anymore, there was a day when I'd be wrestling with both my boys at the same time with one arm, like, yep, gotcha, uh-huh, ooh. I could have just like picked them up and body, oh, body slam. Yeah, don't mess with dad. How foolish would that be? There was one time that I tried to, I thought I had him, and it was Jordan, and I thought, I'm going to give him a good Charlie horse, and 
I got a little overenthusiastic about it, and so I went, and he moved at just the right time and just the right way where it caught my thumb and dislocated my thumb. To this day, he claims that as the time he beat me wrestling. I tried to claim, no, no, that was me being meek. I could have really hurt you, but I hurt myself instead. I took the bullet for us, bud. Meekness is not weakness. Meekness is, is, is this, this picture where, where I'm holding back what I could rightly deliver, but I won't. He's slow to anger, but he will not be slow to anger forever. God will not allow injustice and sinfulness to last forever. There comes a point where God just won't wait any longer, and he'll unleash the full power that he has on his enemy, which is sin. He is slow to anger. Please don't misunderstand. Please don't mistake slow to anger as a lack of power. In fact, Nahum's very careful to put those together. He's slow to anger, but he's great in power. Just because he's not acting doesn't mean he can't act. It means he's chosen not to. He is omnipotent. He has such greatness in his power, and we see it in a million ways. You can see it in the, in the enormity of creation. You, can, you look at some of the things that God has created, and it blows your mind. It's also seen in the, in the minuteness of creation. One of my favorite things right now, and it, it happened probably, it's probably four years ago now, is when they finally discovered this thing that they thought existed in, in scientific theory called the Higgs boson particle. It's also referred to as the God particle. So the way they came about it, they kind of took atoms and kind of threw them at each other as fast as they possibly could, and it, it erupted into this, and the atoms broke into pieces, and they were able to look at the smallest, of tiniest of, of molecules within the atom to see what makes up, what are the building blocks of all, all matter, and, and so they find this particle, and they're like, we have found it. This disproves creationism. This disproves that there is a God. See, we found this little thing, and it makes everything. It's the God particle, and that cracks me up. Because God's got to be in heaven like, keep looking, there's more. When you see something that's small, you realize how incredibly intricate God's power is. God in verse 8 says this, with an overwhelming flood, he will bring to an end, sorry, he will make an end of Nineveh. He'll pursue his foes into the realm of darkness. Whatever they plot against the Lord, he will bring to an end. Trouble will not come a second time. This is his power. There is nothing that is going to overtake him. There is nothing that is going to overthrow him. This is his power. And verse 6, who can withstand his indignation? Who can endure his fierce anger? His wrath is poured out like fire. The rocks are shattered before him. Have you ever tried to shatter a rock. Yesterday I tried for a little while, and today my arms go about this high. God shows up on the scene and rocks just burst into pieces. That's who our God is. No one can stand before his mighty and his awesome power. Chapter 1, verse 12 says, this is what the Lord says, although they have allies and they are numerous, they will be destroyed and pass away. It doesn't matter who your buddies are. It doesn't matter how strong they are. None of that matters. When God comes to bring his right and just judgment, who can stand? 
And then this final declaration against Nineveh in verse 14 says this, The Lord has given a command concerning you, Nineveh. You will have no descendants to bear your name. I will destroy the images and the idols that are in the temple of your gods. I will prepare your grave, for you are vile. God's just and right judgment against Nineveh is not just a slap on the wrist. It is in totality. And I think one of the things that we must wrestle with as we hear the message of God against Nineveh is this. When God is against you, there is no hope for you. It isn't like, and it is, be careful, I don't want to go too much on a rabbit trail, but, but it isn't like, oh, so God's going to judge me and cast me into hell? Well, I got a lot of buddies there. That's not how this works. When God is against you, there is no hope for you. There is no dodging his judgment. There is no avoiding the just and righteous judgment of the holy, omnipotent judge. This is going to happen, and there is no hope for you. Look, look, look at chapter 2. I'm going to do a, a lot of reading here just because, again, the book was written to be, to be read. And, and I think when you hear this, you hear some of the, the powerful prophecy that actually was fulfilled years later uh, in, in Nineveh. In verse 1, God starts the trash talk. And there's really no other way to look at it. I love this. God looks at Nineveh. He's like, hey, boys, all right, good. An attacker's coming against you, so, so guard the fortress. Watch the road. Brace yourselves. Marshal all your strength. God's saying, go ahead, you ready? You sure you're ready? I mean, I don't want to start before you're ready. Now you ready? You ready? All right, here I come. And listen to his prophecy. Starting in verse 3. The shields of the soldiers are red. The warriors are clad in scarlet. The metal on the chariots flashes on the day they are made ready. The spears of juniper are brandished. The, the chariots storm through the streets. They rush back and forth through the squares. They're, they're like flaming torches. They dart about like lightning. Nineveh, Nineveh summons her picked troops, her chosen troops, yet they, they all stumble on their way. They dash to the city wall. The protective shield is put in place. The river gates are thrown open and the palace collapses. It is decreed that Nineveh be exiled and carried away. Her female slaves moan like doves. They, they beat on their breasts. Nineveh is like a pool whose water is draining away. Stop, stop, they cry, but no one turns back. Plunder the silver, plunder the gold. The supply is endless, the wealth from all its treasures. She's pillaged, plundered, stripped, hearts melt, knees give way, bodies tremble, and every face grows pale. Where now is the lion's den? The place where they fed their young, where the lion and the lioness went, and the cubs with nothing to fear. The lion killed enough for his cubs and strangled the prey for his mate, filling his lairs with the kill and his dens with the prey. I am against you, declares the Lord Almighty. I will burn up your chariots in smoke, and the sword will devour your young lions. I will leave you no prey on the earth. The voices of your messengers will no longer be heard. Woe to the city of blood, full of lies, full of plunder, never without victims. The crack of whips, the clatter of wheels, galloping horses and jolting chariots, charging cavalry, flashing swords and glittering spears, many casualties, piles of dead, bodies without number, people stumbling over the corpses, all because of the wanton lust of a prostitute, alluring the mistress of sorceries 
who enslaved nations by her prostitution and peoples by her witchcraft. I am against you, declares the Lord Almighty. I will lift your skirts over your face. I will show the nations your nakedness and the kingdoms your shame. I will pelt you with filth. I will treat you with contempt and make you a spectacle. And all who see you will flee from you and say, well, Nineveh's in ruins. Who, who, who will mourn for her? Where can I find anybody to comfort you? See, see the description of Nineveh's fall is, is very vivid, and it's very um, specific. Let me hit a few things, um, just, to, just to point out. So if some of our young people are here, any of our young people have the student notes with them, there's a section that talks about the lions. Well, this is a significant section in here because the Assyrians were known to be the great lion tamers of their day. They hunted lions. They kept lions as pets. Everything they did was all lions. The, 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 the coat of arms that they wore on their armor had a lion on it. I mean, they, they were known to be the, the lions. There's a, there's a relief that is actually uh, on display in, in, in Britain. And it's a picture of one of the Assyrian kings King's handling a lion, and he's behind the lion, and he's holding it by its tail, and the lion's going crazy, and the king's like, I'm the great king who can control lions. And, and Nahum just, just attacks him right there. He's like, oh, lions, huh? Guess what? God's going to wipe them out. I love the picture of, of verse 8 where it talks about the pool whose water is draining away. Picture your bathtub. You pull the plug, and the water's going, and they're like, stop, stop, stop. No, oh, never mind. There is nobody staying. They're, they're all running away. They're all taken off. They, they, they want to get out of town as fast as they can. There, there's this, this taunt that God brings back to them here. We're going to read it in a moment. And it's, it's talking about this place called Thebes that's found in Egypt. And it's a very interesting historical event. So, so look at verse 8 of chapter 3. And I'm going to read the next couple of verses just to point this out to you. It's, it's fascinating that Nahum incorporates this into his prophecy, into his book. He says to the Ninevites, as, as God taunts them, Are you better than Thebes? Thebes, the country that is, or sorry, the city that is situated on the Nile with water all around her. See, the river was her defense and the waters were her wall. Cush and Egypt were her boundless strength. Put and Libya were among her allies. Let me stop there. What he's saying is, so, so you think you're better than this, this city called Thebes. It's also called Ammon or No Ammon, and it's, it's down in Egypt. And, and the strength of the city was the fact that it was right there on the Nile River, and so that surrounding the city was water, so it made it almost impenetrable. Nobody would ever think of attacking Thebes because of the water. But on top of that, he lists out um, um, uh, Cush and Egypt and Put and Libya. And he says, listen, those, those four countries were, were, were the allies. They were the allies of Thebes. And, and interestingly, is if you look at a map, what he's saying is they had allies north, south, east, and west. So not only were they surrounded by water and protected by water, they were protected by allies. So, so anybody who would think to attack Thebes is crazy. They're not in their right mind. But guess who did? Assyria. They ventured into Egypt and they overthrew Thebes. And Nahum records some of the atrocities that occurred in verse 10. Yet Thebes was taken captive and went into exile. Her infants were dashed to pieces at every street corner. Lots were cast for her nobles. All her great men were put into chains. And, and, and what, what, what Nahum says is, seriously, you think you're better than them? 
um, I got a word for you. You're not. And your judgment, according to chapter 3, verse 19, is a done deal. Nothing can heal you. Your wound is fatal. All who hear the news about you clap their hands at your fall, for who has not felt your endless cruelty? And this is going to happen, and there is no way around it. Your wound is fatal, and as soon as word gets out about the judgment that's going to come against you, Nineveh and Assyria, people are going to be applauded. Bring them down! It's kind of like the way we all watch the NBA Finals and cheer against Cleveland. It's the same thing. Or as you all cheer against my Patriots. It's the same thing. Oh, yeah, bring them down! The difference is here it's a certain thing, but with Patriots, I'm just saying. Um, How much of a done deal is it? Well, Assyria lasted less than 100 years more after the prophecy of Nahum. And the combination of the, the Medes and the Babylonians came in and they laid siege to Nineveh. They tried to choke them out and, and they tended to stay much longer, but then there was this unusual rainy season. And you know what happened? the water in the river began to rise. And it's not really said how it happened, but many believe that the the Medes and the Babylonians actually took the river gates and closed them up so the water would build like a dam outside. And then they whipped open the doors. And as soon as the king of Assyria saw what was happening, he retreated to his palace. He called in all of his family and he ordered that they all be burned alive. The water rushed into Nineveh, crashing against the base of the palace, and it says the palace crumbled. Sound familiar? Here's another fascinating fact. The beginning of what I read in chapter 2, verse 3, talking about the shields of the soldiers are red, the warriors are clad in scarlet. You know what's interesting about the Medes and the Babylonians? Guess what colors they wore? Guess what one of their main weapons was? A chariot with, with blades on its wheels, so as it whipped back and forth up and down the road, it would just wreak havoc on anyone standing there. See, the very prophecy of Nahum was fulfilled but 100 years, 150 years later, some time later. And God's judgment occurred as he promised. So, so look at this today. You understand, millions of people have this... Um, sanitized image of God's judgment. We picture in our mind when it's time for God to judge that God is like a grandfather who's stroking his beard and smoking his pipe and the youngsters come up and he's like, I'm sorry, you cannot enter. Oh, but I, I tried. I did a lot. And he says, oh, that's okay. Your sin's not that serious. You can go ahead in. I want you to contrast that image with what we've really seen in the book of Nahum about who God is. God is omnipotent. He is sovereign. He is a divine warrior who will justly judge sin and those who are allegiant to it because he will not allow sin to have the victory. Our God is not a grandpa, and he's certainly not, this is just a a pet peeve, he is certainly not the man upstairs. He is an omnipotent, omniscient, just, and holy 
God. And so the message of the book of Nahum is, man, if God is against you, there is no hope for you. And that is a terrifying thing when you begin to, to see God deal. When you begin to see God lower the boom, when you see God drop the hammer on these people, and you see God begin to, to bring this judgment where judgment is deserved, it's, a, it's an intimidating thing for us to be like, I don't know, man. I'm not, I'm not. This, this makes me nervous. This makes me worried. This scares me a little bit. But see, you gotta understand, that same God who is omniscient and omnipotent, the one who is jealous and gonna empty his wrath out on his enemy's sin, that same God is the God of chapter one, verse seven. That same God who is bringing judgment is this God. The Lord is good. A refuge in times of trouble. He cares for those who trust in him. When God is against you, there's no hope for you. But when God is for you, there is nothing but hope for you. The, the Hebrew term here, um, when it talks about the, he cares for those who trust in him, the Hebrew word is, 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 is yada, which means to know. And, and really, as this is said, it's like, man, so, so, so God says this, the Lord is good, a refuge in times of trouble. He knows those who trust in him. And please understand this. It isn't like I invited 100 people to my house. I have no idea what their names are, but they get in because their name is on the list. It's not that kind of no. It's I know them, and so I care for them. I know everything about them. I know what heartache they're going through. I know what, what pains they're experiencing. I know what all of this is, and so I will care for them. Those who put their trust in God should not fear when the storms and the clouds show up and God begins to bring his vengeance and wrath on sin because he's a refuge. He's that place where we can flee in times of danger. Um, This does not mean we live a life that is free from danger or free from hardship. It just means that we have protection and care in the midst of it. There are going to be hard times. There's going to be difficulty. But the bottom line of Nahum is our God reigns. He is Lord and sovereign. He is true and faithful to his word. Even when he's allowing things that are chaotic and filled with heartache, he remains faithful and he remains good. So so the Lord is good, a refuge in times of trouble. He cares for those who trust in him. His goodness and his care for us is true when when, when, when things are going great, when babies are being born, when when our senior saints are celebrating more birthdays, the announcement of pregnancy, um, when when there's engagements and promotions at work. There's there's, there's so many good things. But, But God is good and he cares for his own even when it's dark and it hurts. And our young people pass away. There's miscarriages. Broken marriages. When the doctor calls and says it's cancer. The Lord is good and he cares for those who trust in him. That is true in the light and it's true in the darkness. God is Good. It doesn't feel that way all the time. But there is no softer pillow for you to lay your head on than the truth that God is good and he's in charge. 
Nothing happens outside of control. He knows exactly where you're at this morning. He knows your struggles. He knows your pain. He knows your trials. He, he knows what obstacles have come up against you. He knows what's, what's weighing heavy on your heart. And what Nahum tells us is not only does he know what's happening, he is actively working out our deliverance from it. Because the Lord is good and he cares for those who trust in him. Um. Let me, let me back up a second. He works out our deliverance. He works out those things for our ultimate good. Please note, I did not say he works out things for our enjoyment or our approval. Right? I think sometimes we're like, well, I didn't like that. Okay. Who's in charge? A God who is always good and he can always be trusted. There's times... I'm going to admit it myself. There's times where I'm like, I, I know you're good. I know you're always right. I'm going to say this now, and I know I'm going to eat my words later, but I think you made a mistake. And 100% of the time, yep, sorry, got it. See, see, there's nothing better than knowing that God is in charge and he cares for his own. And here's the amazing part. In the midst of the chaos, in the midst of the confusion, what God has done is caused us then to look to him to see our deliverance. Unfortunately, we tend to look to the hills like, where is my help going to come from? I am still waiting. That's what Psalm 121 is, isn't it? I look to the hills to try to find where my strength comes from. Where is it? And there's an aha that happens with the psalmist. Yeah, that's right. My hope doesn't come from the hills. It doesn't come from the mountains. It doesn't come from this deliverance of the secret army that's going to bust in. My hope and help is from the Lord. Look at, look at the last verse of chapter 1 as we close. He says this, look, look, they're on the mountains. It's the feet of the one who brings good news and proclaims peace. So celebrate your festivals, Judah. Fulfill your vows. No more will the wicked invade you. They will be completely destroyed. See, in the midst of the chaos, in the midst of the heartache, in the midst of the hardship, God is in control and he cares for his own. And now we get what? Peace. Peace that comes from God himself. Peace that is is the comfort of the, the refuge that we find in God. Peace in that sure victory of God over his enemies. A peace that's the reason for our celebrating. It's the reason for our hope. And so, so with that declaration, it's on you now. Not to create your own peace or your own deliverance, but it's now on you to believe what God has done for you. See, he reached down in the midst of the darkest of times and the most chaotic of moments, and he provided for us an answer to the biggest question we have. How in the world can I find peace and hope in this? And his answer was, in Jesus. You want peace? You want victory? Jesus Christ has taken our sins and he has died for them and he has risen in victory over them and now we look to the mountains and can cry out with them, peace! So how can we not celebrate that? How could we not be overjoyed by the fact that the message for us in Jesus Christ is that the words... (laughs) Behold, I'm against you. Don't apply to us. See, in Christ, God's for us. And that's what we remember this morning as we observe communion together.
We look at a picture of of broken cracker and juice and we're reminded of what it is that God did for us to deliver us. We're reminded that in the midst of chaos, God sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to die for us. I know. It's hardship. There's, There's hard stuff. It's difficult. There's heartbreak. But God knows you. And it's not just, a, oh, I know them. No, he knows you. The psalmist tells us that he, he catches our tears in a bottle. He cares for you in a way no one else can. And he demonstrated that care for you by sending his son to die for you. So today, as we look at that picture and we remember what it is that Jesus did for us, may we be forever grateful and celebrate that in Christ, God is for us. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you that your word is good, that it's true, and that no matter how I possibly can mess it up, that your word will always stand. I thank you that in Jesus Christ we have access to you. We have a relationship with you. We can know you and trust you. Father, I pray that in this moment, if there's anybody here who doesn't know Jesus Christ, that that this would be the moment where they repent, where they fall on their face before you and confess you as Savior, that they would confess you in the midst and the, the context of the difficulty that they find themselves in, that they would celebrate the Savior that is theirs, Jesus Christ. Lord, as we look at this picture this morning, I pray that we would be astonished at how much you too truly care for us. Enough that you would send your son, Jesus Christ, to die for us. Lord, may that not grow old. Renew our hearts with this picture today. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.